Uh, would you stand with me? And we are going to read from Matthew chapter 2. If you have your Bibles or would like to grab one in the pew in front of you, uh, please feel free to do that. Matthew chapter 2, and I'm going to read verses 13 through 23. Matthew writes, When they had gone, that is the, the Magi, when they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the, man, from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. And so he got up, took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel but when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets. He will be called a Nazarene. You may be seated. Our God in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this story. Lord, I pray that we would hear it in a very new and a very real way this morning. And that this morning that we would not only be, be touched by the, the peace that comes from Christmas, but also the challenge of it all as well. In Christ's name, amen. So if you have your bulletins on the back, are a few notes in the back. And as you'll see, I titled this sermon, uh, Noisy Night, Holy Night. Um, obviously, as a play on our uh, familiar song, Silent Night, Holy Night. And as I was thinking um, a couple days after I passed on the title to, uh, to Jamie, that uh, I probably should have titled it, Noisy Night, Holy Fight. Because uh, in this story, we see that there is a battle taking place. In the Gospel of Matthew, and in particular in the stories surrounding Jesus' birth, the coming of Jesus does not bring peace on earth. Of course, in the Gospel of Luke, the angels do show up to the shepherds. And they promise that the Messiah is born and he's going to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men. But it's interesting, isn't it, that those angels that appear to the shepherds are called the heavenly host, which are a heavenly army that is standing there saying the Messiah is coming and he's going to bring peace on earth, goodwill to men. Jesus brings peace 
and he also comes with a sword. And the Gospel of Matthew, in particular, right off the bat in these first two chapters, tells us that when Jesus arrives, it brings disruption. When Jesus arrives, it brings disruption. Now, all of us love Christmas Eve candlelight services, right? All of us standing with the candles in our hands, singing Silent Night and Holy Night. I love that. I have so many memories of that growing up. Uh, They are sweet and precious memories to me. I remember going to those services, and then um, every Christmas Eve, my brother and I were able to, to open one present, and they were always new pajamas. And I think my mom wanted to take pictures in the morning with us in new pajamas rather than the old tired ones. So we got new pajamas every Christmas Eve. And I loved that experience. Going to the Christmas Eve service, holding my candle, singing Silent Night, Holy Night. That is a a good and true part of Christmas that we really do need to hold on to. And and when we focus on that, that Silent Night and Holy Night aspect of Christmas, we have this sense that, that because Jesus has come, that all is going to be well. But the Christmas stories in the Gospel of Matthew, there's none of that. None of that is there. The stories about Jesus' birth in the Gospel of Matthew, if you can in some way take off those silent night, holy night lenses for a while and read these stories, you will see that they are stories of disruption and anguish. They are stories of turmoil and inconvenience and just plain old evil. And if we're able to take off those lenses, we'll see that there's another part of the Christmas story that's really important for us to hear. And so this morning, we're going to look at these stories surrounding the birth of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew and try to see them for the really painful stories that they are. And one of my goals is is to make these stories strange to you again. And they've become so familiar to us, so easy to read through these stories. I know these stories, and we read these stories through that silent night, holy night spirit that we, that we bring to Christmas, and it's easy to miss the strangeness and terribleness of them all. Matthew is communicating to us that the arrival of Jesus is disruptive. His birth, before he even spoke a word... His birth disrupts the lives of every single character in this story. All is not calm in this story. Let's consider this story for a moment, and as we think about them, to really put yourselves in the shoes of Mary and Joseph. Mary comes to Joseph and says, Joseph, I'm pregnant. Joseph knew the baby wasn't his, and Joseph had not yet heard from an angel the truth about these things, and people back then knew as well as people today where babies come from. And we don't know what Mary told him, but whatever she tried to tell them, it would have been unbelievable to him. And so let's get this straight from the very beginning. Joseph himself is a disappointed and broken-hearted young man. But he was also a righteous man. And he was a man who obviously loved Mary very much. 
And he does the right and the noble thing, and he makes the very best of a bad situation, and he decides to divorce Mary quietly. He doesn't want to shame her. He doesn't want to shame himself. Under Jewish law, he could have had her stoned to death. But even in his own heartbreak, he does what is best for Mary, what is best for himself, makes the best of a bad situation, and decides to divorce her quietly. And then, after a week, or maybe two weeks, or a month, or two months, we don't know how long it was, after all of that grief and heartache, then Joseph gets a visit from an angel telling him the truth. I got a little bit angry at God about this one. God, why not send the angel to Joseph beforehand? Why not tell Joseph before he has to go through all that heartbreak and grief? Why not tell Joseph before that so that Mary doesn't have to go through the shame of uh, this thought of, Joseph, I'm now pregnant, and now Joseph, the man that I love and want to marry, that now he's going to leave me. God, if you're going to bother sending angels, why not send it like two weeks ago and spare them all of that? So let's get this straight, too. Apparently, it's not God's number one priority to spare us from pain. He often has purposes in our pain that we simply do not know and that we cannot see. And so Joseph agrees to marry her. He takes on the shame of marrying an already pregnant Mary. No doubt many in his small town of Nazareth would have assumed it was his. No one would have believed the whole Holy Spirit and angel story. And then it gets worse. They have to take a trip to Bethlehem while Mary is nine months pregnant. They leave family and friends and take this hundred or so mile journey while Mary is nine months pregnant. They leave family and friends and they get to Bethlehem and there's the whole no room in the inn problem. And then Mary goes into labor. And after having four kids, I know that all my wife wants in that moment of being labor is to feel safe, to feel protected. To feel like people are around who her, love her and are going to care for her. And here is Mary, 13 or 14 years old, far away from family, far away from home and alone. And she gives birth to this son with no epidural. And we don't know exactly where, but the stories are clear that wherever it was, whether it's a barn or an empty room or out back or wherever, whatever the situation was, it wasn't ideal. Right? And then she has birth to the baby, and then these shepherds start filing in. In this moment, after having a baby, these shepherds, can I hold the baby? Can you wash your hands first, your shepherds? You know, you know we see lots of paintings about the Nativity story, and it's all just so peaceful. So I tried to find some different ones this week that reflected maybe a different side or truth of the story, and um, I, I found this one that I think is quite beautiful. This was painted by Julius Garibaldi in 1891, and I think it reflects a bit more of the truth and weariness of the matter. And there's another one that I couldn't show you. <laughs> 
but it's called The Creation of Man by Annie Leonard, L-E-N-N-A-R-D. And it is beautiful in its terribleness as it reflects the birth of Christ. Creation of Man by Annie Leonard. I encourage you to Google it this week. There's a song by Andrew Peterson sung by Jill Phillips called A Labor of Love, and I want to read the lyrics to you. It was not a silent night. There was blood on the ground. You could hear a woman cry in the alleyways that night on the streets of David's town. And the stable was not clean, and the cobblestones were cold. And little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, she had no mother's hand to hold. It was a labor of pain. It was a cold sky above. But for the girl on the ground in the dark, with every beat of her beautiful heart, it was a labor of love. Noble Joseph by her side, calloused hands and weary eyes, there were no midwives to be found on the streets of David's town in the middle of the night. So he held her and he prayed. Shafts of moonlight on his face. But the baby in her womb, he was the maker of the moon. He was the author of our faith that could make the mountains move. For little Mary, full of grace, with the tears upon her face, it was a labor of love. So she has this baby in Bethlehem. Alone, and the story gets worse. Imagine being in Bethlehem, still not her home. You're a young mom and dad with a toddler, one, maybe two years old. You've settled there for a bit, and you hear that there are actually Roman soldiers who are coming to kill your baby. The madman Herod hears from the Magi that there's a new king of the Jews that has been born in Bethlehem, and so they have to get out of there as fast as they can. And on the road, maybe they hear news that Herod went through with it, and maybe some of those moms that Mary had spent some time with for that year or two in, in Bethlehem, she hears that their babies have been killed because Herod was after your baby. You have to take a 300-mile journey this time, 300 miles through the desert to get to Egypt, and you're stuck there in Egypt, again, far away from home, raising this mysterious toddler in a country that's not your own. And then Jesus hears that Herod is dead, and he, they start to go back to Bethlehem, but on their way back to Bethlehem, they hear that Herod's son, Archelaus, also not a good dude, is now ruling over Bethlehem. And so instead of going there, they have to show their faces again back in Nazareth, back where this scandal of this pregnancy all started with to begin with. And the finger pointing and the whispers and all of that. This is not a silent night, holy night story for Mary and Joseph. The two or three years of Joseph and Mary's life 
hold some of the most traumatic experiences that anyone could ever have. And we tend not to tell these stories too much at Christmas. They're kind of a downer, right? Kind of kill the mood for a Christmas Eve candlelight service. But they are essential parts of the story for us to know and to understand. They are part of the origins. They are part of the genesis of Jesus. Remember a couple weeks ago, the gospel writers have no interest in sanitizing Jesus' story for us. In fact, as we saw in that genealogy a couple weeks ago, Matthew goes out of his way to tell us the worst part of Jesus' family line. He brings out all of the black sheep in the family, and he lines them all up for history to see. And Matthew doesn't allow us to sanitize the arrival, the birth of Jesus either. When we read Matthew's story and the events surrounding Jesus' birth, we realize that there is a challenging side to the Christmas story that we have to come to terms with. Not just so that we can be faithful to the Bible's true methods, although that's important, but to come to terms with it because there's something here about the Christmas story that must come to bear in our own lives. It is true that all will be well. It is true that the Messiah has come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, but that peace doesn't come without a cost. When the Messiah comes, he comes to be king. He comes to be Lord, and in the end, that is good for everyone. But in the meantime, there are a whole lot of us who want to hold on to our own position on our own throne. We like to be in control. We hold on to our own kingship. There are a lot of us who don't want to give up being Lord of our own lives. We want to be in control. The peace that Jesus brings comes with a cost. And there are many costs in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'm learning in, as I'm studying it, the Gospel of Matthew is, is very clear, the many, many costs of following Jesus. And one of the first things that it costs us is giving up our desire to be the king over our own lives. It costs us giving up control, giving up our vision for what our lives should be, The arrival of Jesus disrupts our own dreams of being in control. We have this false belief that that Jesus' role in our life is to help us to fulfill our hopes and desires for our life. We have these desires for our lives, and so we accept Jesus, and we think it's his job to help us get what we want. It's his job to make our lives a little bit easier, a little bit more convenient. It's his job to make us healthy and wealthy and wise. It's his job to keep us from pain. And when God doesn't show up for us in these ways, we get mad because we don't think he's doing his job. And what we find in these very traumatic and disturbing stories about Joseph and Mary is that the arrival of Jesus in our lives isn't at all what we expect them to be. He doesn't come to give us what we want to make, or to make our lives more convenient or to make us happy and wealthy and wise or to keep us from pain. He comes to be king. And there can be only one king. And hopping off the throne of my own life is costly. And it's really, really painful. 
And so in these two early chapters of Matthew, we see two different responses of the, uh, to the arrival of Jesus as the king from two different kinds of kings. In Herod and in the three Magi, there are two different kinds of responses to the arrival of Jesus the king. And I want to take these as two examples, one very bad and one very good, as ways that we respond to Jesus. First, there's Herod. Um, who is this guy? Uh, this is Herod here. Um, if you read the Gospels in the book of Acts, you bump into Herods all over the place. If you have trouble keeping your Herods, kind of which one's which or whatever, it's okay. They're all really bad. Just know that. There's five or six of them. They're talked about in the Bible. It's okay if you can't keep them straight. If you read Herod, just know that they're bad. The Herods were this dynasty of kings that the Roman government put into place over Israel. And uh, they're just all really terrible guys. The, the one that's talked in this story, his name was Herod the Great. Uh, no doubt a name that he gave to himself. And all of them were bad guys. They were power hungry, always desperate and grabbing for power in one way or another. Uh, Herod the Great, for example, during his reign, he killed two brothers-in-law, one wife, a mother-in-law, a father-in-law, and three of his own sons who he suspected were trying to steal his throne from him. This is an insecure man. And so you can imagine his reaction when three magi come and say, where is the real king of the Jews? We see you sitting on this throne here, Herod, but there's a real king somewhere. Where is he? You can imagine what Herod does. Well, Herod does what Herod does. He finds out where The child was born, he sends out some Roman soldiers, and he has them kill any male child born during that time in that city. The arrival of King Jesus for Herod is a threat. He may have to step off of his throne. And so he fights. He rages. He holds on to his position on the throne as tightly as he can. And then we have the Magi. Talk about some strange characters in the Bible. These guys are mysteries to me. Uh, They're called Magi or wise men. We sang a song earlier called We Three Kings. Magi, wise men, kings. Who are these guys? We don't really know. But uh, Matthew calls them Magi, and Magi were, uh, were counselors and advisors to kings. And throughout the Bible, at different times, we have men who play this role of, of Magi. Uh, Daniel, for instance, in the Old Testament, he was called a Magi to King Darius. He's actually called the chief Magi of King Darius's court. And there are some who even think that these magi who came to visit Jesus, that that maybe that they had been familiar with Daniel's writings and Daniel's promises that a Messiah was going to come through Israel and that these magi were familiar with Daniel. And so they were waiting for this Messiah to come, but we don't know. But that's, I think, the most interesting interpretation of who these magi might be. We really don't know who they are, but we know that they are royal figures, and sometimes they're even believed to be some kind of of kings. And there's some prophecies, because there's some prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about kings coming to bring gifts to the Messiah. And over time, there's this been association with magi who come bringing gifts to Jesus as these kings who are coming to bring gifts to the Messiah. But obviously, we see in them a very stark contrast to the response that Herod gave, right? When it's revealed to them that there is one who is born king of the Jews, 
they pack up their bags, and they make this trip thousands of miles away. Probably took them two years to get there and another two years to get back to bring these gifts to Jesus. However excited they may have been to hear that the Messiah was going to come, this was an incredible disruption to their life. They probably lived very comfortable and respectable lives in whatever kingdom they came from, but they gave that up in order to come into worship. And they humble themselves too, because in this story we see that first they go to Jerusalem, the place where they thought the king would be. They go to the palace and encounter King Herod, and they know that this guy isn't it. And so then they find their way to this little house with this very humble family, and they kneel before him, and they worship him, and they offer him their gifts. And I love this about the Magi, that they they worship and they offer their sacrifices not because of what Jesus can do for them, but simply for who he is. Because by the time they get to this little humble house, I mean, back then, sometimes kings would send gifts to other kings in order to kind of curry favor for them later. Well, by this time, they know that this little baby doesn't really have any earthly thing to offer to them, right? And they give them these gifts anyway. These are two different responses to the arrival of Jesus. Too many, two different responses to the disruption of Jesus in our lives. For some, they hear that Jesus arrived and he is a threat. Herod rejects him, runs away, opposes him, tries to kill him. And then there are others like the Magi who see him and they are enthralled by him and they worship him. Both Herod and Magi heard the same news. They heard the same news that a king was born, and this news caused disruption in their life. And both of them responded to that disruption very differently. So we're at the beginning of this series on the book of Matthew. And a couple of weeks ago, I told you that this series is going to be about discipleship. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to learn why Jesus is worthy to be followed. To be a disciple simply means to follow. In the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to learn why Jesus is worthy to be followed, about what it means to follow Jesus and how to go about following Jesus. And two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' history, his genealogy, his family origin, and we learned that Jesus is not afraid to be identified with sinners and with outsiders. His family tree is filled with them, and Matthew takes great pains to show us how filled his family history is with brokenness and with shame. We saw that one of the first steps of our discipleship is to admit that we have failed, to admit that we are sinners, and that Jesus is willing to step into our story and to be identified with us and to allow us to be identified with him as broken sinners. And we learn another aspect of discipleship from this story today. That in order to be a disciple of Jesus, we must give up control of our life. The idea that we are in control is an illusion anyway, and we have to give that illusion up. We have to step off the throne and submit our lives to Jesus. Jesus says this in the Gospel of Matthew in many different ways. Later in Matthew, he will say this, Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. 
we can't turn Jesus into the one who, who makes all of our hopes and dreams come true. We can't turn Jesus into the one who makes us healthy and wealthy and wise. We can't turn Jesus into the guy who is there to just keep us from all the bad things that happen. Jesus is not simply a wise sage who gives us good advice about how to live. He is king. And he comes as a king to rule over your life and mind. His job is not to help us make our lives to be totally awesome. He's our king. And we follow him. And his kingship will bring us true peace, true hope, and true joy. And his kingship will disrupt your life. And if his arrival in your life hasn't disrupted your life, then you are probably still on your throne. Earlier this year, in one of the early steps that I took in the, the painful journey that you all know that I've been through this past year. I was having a conversation with Kevin Butcher. You may remember him. Uh, he's a pastor from Detroit who came and preached this past spring, and he and I began to meet and have some conversations uh, each month. And in one of those conversations with him, I was just trying to be as, as honest and as open as I could be with my relationship with God and the lack of intimacy that I was experiencing with God. And I told him that I, I was really afraid to, to give up control of my life to Christ because I was afraid that if I did that, then Jesus would mess up this good thing that I have going. And Kevin said, Ryan, um, it looks like you have constructed a nice little Christianity for yourself. Maybe that story makes sense to you. Maybe it doesn't. But if you are a Christian, that is, if you are a follower of Jesus, and you've never felt disrupted by Jesus, then I submit to you that you are still on your throne. And you have a choice today. You can step off, or Jesus will take you off. He loves you too much to leave you there. He knows that the life that you have constructed for yourself will not lead to true, abundant life. And so you can step off it, or he will take you off it. And the really hard part of all of that, the really hard part of that is that that journey off the throne is a really painful, painful journey. It's most often through our pain that Jesus will teach us where we belong and where he belongs. Like in Joseph's case, it's not God's number one priority to keep us from pain. It's not. Rather, he uses our pain to place you squarely where you need to be. And in our discipleship, we need to remember that Jesus did not promise that when we come to him, that he will make all of our hopes and dreams come true. He did not promise us that he will keep us from any and all pain. He promises us 
that he will be there with us in our pain. And the fact is, he has already faced our pain. He has already endured our pain himself. Jesus' entire life from the very beginning we've seen today was filled with trauma and with tragedy. From the very beginning, we hear in this story that he is a marked man. Herod is trying to kill him, and he will live the rest of his life knowing, knowing in one way or another that he was going to die as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. He suffers with us. Jesus wept in the garden on that night he was betrayed. Jesus' dreams were not coming true that night as he knelt in the garden and he prayed as he chose the road of obedience to his father. It was not what he wanted. We can get all theological about the divine and human will of Jesus or whatever, but we're told that this man, Jesus, was sweating and in distress, that he was sweating blood, pleading with his father, please, if there is any other way, may this cup pass from me. And the answer from his father, his loving father, was no. And that divine and painful no led Jesus to the cross with all of the pain and the shame that came with it. And that divine no also led to the resurrection. We want to have healing without wounds. And we want to have forgiveness without admitting our sin. In this world, Jesus said, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It is on the other side of our pain and on our suffering that we find the resurrection and abundant life that is available to each one of us if we will step off of our throne and kneel. Father, you know the weight of this message today for each one of us. You know the ways that each one of us, like Herod, are grasping so hard to hold on to our control. And we see the steps that it would take to let go of control. We know that they're painful and hard, and we don't want to take them. But God, we ask that you would help us in your good, gracious, firm, and loving way you enable us to be in the right place so that you can be in your rightful place. Amen.